Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, the 31st of January, 2012, and our special guest is David Lurcher. David, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. So you and I get to know each other pretty well lately. You're in Toronto, right? I am for the Super Conference of the Ontario Library Association. Well, thanks for taking the time. And we know that you have a class that you start teaching in about an hour, so we are going to make sure that we let you go a little bit early. That'd be great. The Future of Education is sponsored by Web 2.0 Labs. It's web20labs.com. Uh, projects around making space uh, for conversation in education. And Blackboard Collaborate who provide this terrific room, thanks to Blackboard. And this is, I think, a, a new, new version. It was an upgrade over the weekend. We'll see if we notice any differences. Coming up, uh, ISTE is a great event for those of us in the EdTech world. And ISTE Unplugged is the sort of fringe conference that ISTE allows us to hold around the event. And this is really, really fun. Please consider coming. All the activities are free. Saturday's an all-day unconference that's previously been known as EduBloggerCon. We've rebranded it as Social EdCon. Then we're going to have a special event on Saturday night uh, at Incubator for startups to present to educators. We have a Global Education Summit on Sunday in the afternoon. Wednesday, uh, Monday to Wednesday is the Bloggers Cafe. Uh, if you haven't done this before, you're in for a real treat. Anyway, a place to hang out during the conference. Uh, we're going to do an education apps meetup. Uh, lots more fun coming up. Please tell others about it. It really is a lot of fun. And it is our fifth anniversary of that event and as well Classroom 2.0. Uh, we're doing two things so far as a part of Classroom 2.0's fifth anniversary, which is technically in March. But uh, the first is we've started something called Ed Incubator. It's a place for small startups or organizations to build a teacher, student teacher, and interested educator council within Classroom 2.0. Our first group is the PBS NewsHour. Just go to classroom20.com and click on Ed Incubator and you'll find out more information. We've also announced, as of yesterday, a crowdsourced book activity. We want everybody to consider writing a chapter about their use of Web 2.0 technologies in education. Classroom 2.0, the book. You see the link up there on the site, classroom20.com. The book, click on it. talks all about how you can contribute. We will publish every submission. We'll select some of those to go in the book, but every submission will get published on the web. We really want to help you um, contribute and participate. Coming up in our virtual conference world, we are going to do a Classroom 2.0 fifth anniversary celebration, but we haven't set a date yet. Uh, gaming and education will be on April 26th. That was going to be a four-hour conference. We now think it will be a 12-hour conference. The alternate education conference will be May 10th through the 12th. That's homeschooling, unschooling, distance learning, and the like. Library 2.012, the future of libraries, is going to be October 3rd through 5th. Thanks again to San Jose State University and their library program, and the Global Education Conference, November 12th to the 16th. This should be a really fun year. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, Cable Green talks about the obviousness of open policy. His basic premise, if the government pays for it, it should be open. <laughs> You're going to love it. This is really fun. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to have a panel on personal learning profiles that should be 
equally interesting. Next week, Lorette Lin, the unplugged mom, a homeschooling guru, comes on. Alan Blankstein on improving individual schools. Khalid Smith on Startup Weekend EDU on February 14th, Valentine's Day. I'm sure he has permission from his wife, but that should be very interesting, especially since they just announced the partnership with Pearson, which is raising lots of concerns. So if you want to ask Khalid any questions, come that night. Jane Hart talks to us about social learning. Ruth Sueli on opensource.com. David Weinberger on his new book, Too Big to Know. Mimi Ito comes on on the 12th. Kathy Davidson on her book. David Warlick. Oh, you can see them all there. Howard Rheingold on his new book, NetSmart. Uh, Joseph Green. Jennifer Fox. Anyway, if you've missed any of our shows, you are welcome to listen or watch the recordings. They are all free at futureofeducation.com. We heard from Lee Crockett last week on 21st century literacies. Uh, well, 21st century fluencies. Literacy is not enough. Henry Eyring on the Innovative University. Cheryl Nussbaum Beach on the Connected Educator. Again, lots and lots up there. Hopefully something that's of interest to you. OK, now is your chance to indicate where you're participating from. I've just given you whiteboard privileges, which means to the left of your map, some icons should have shown up. Look for the star or the sun, double click on that, and then click on the map. And it helps to shout out in the chat as well where you're participating from. I know we have begs from Mongolia. I know we have someone from Hong Kong. There's Australia, lots in North America. I can't tell if that X is in South America. Balmy Milwaukee. Lucky you. I'm really looking forward to this show. I'm sure glad you're here. We're going to have a fun night tonight. So wherever you're participating from Venezuela, Wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad that you have decided to join us. Thank you for that. And you can keep putting notes in the chat while I move forward here. So David, uh, as it turns out, I'm living in Park City this year, and you're, you're a Salt Lake native. Or a Salt, you're, you're in Salt Lake. You're actually a Park City native, weren't you? I am. Born and raised there for 20 years, milked cows on a farm. <laughs> well, as it turns out, I, I interviewed you remotely for a conference uh, last year. And since then, you and I have had lunch twice. And we actually roomed together for Educon. So full disclosure, I know a fair amount about what you're doing. And uh, as I ask these questions, I'm giving you a little bit of a platform for telling a story that I'm hoping you will tell. I've really enjoyed the association. At the core, it seems to me that you're a man with a vision. What is that vision? Well, of course, I've uh, <coughs> been in love with uh, libraries and information science and technology for, you know, a career. And uh, you know, just in the in the last uh, decade, even even uh, more recent than that, uh, just new. Uh, New technology tools have emerged that that uh, it's a, there's a class of tools in Web 2.0 that allow um, true collaborative work uh, in real time. That means uh, you envision kids uh, uh, working, uh, you know, 
30 kids working simultaneously on the blackboard, writing together, and uh, that would not be possible in the physical world. But, uh, but in the virtual world, it is possible. And so there's these brand new opportunities to, uh, you know, to uh, educate and allow kids to flourish in, uh, uh, in ways that we've never known before. So I, I like to just, I keep thinking about how we should describe this period of time because even though you're saying things that we haven't known before, these technologies are opening us up to pedagogies that are not necessarily new, right? Participation, active participation, collaboration. It's not new, but they're enhanced or expanded by the technologies. Is it, is it your perception that this is uh, opening new doors or reopening old doors? My perception is that it's actually opening new doors that we've never known before. Uh, we've all been through, uh, you know, schooling where we were to demonstrate our personal expertise, uh, you know, whether on a product we created, a term paper we wrote, or a, uh, <clears throat> a presentation we could make. But now uh, we enter the world of what I would call collaborative intelligence where you, you uh, come into a technology and you bring, uh, you bring your personal expertise, but then together the group can build uh, things that uh, in real time, that's the, the point, in real time that no individual could have brought. So I think it, it is, a, um, you know, it is a, an innovation and we all know, uh, you know, an innovation is something brand new. So I would, I would label it a period of innovation. In your own career, have your ideas around librarianship and the role of libraries changed? Well, enormously. Uh, you know, historically, uh, libraries uh, collected and they stored and they retrieved information and they provided reference assistance to try to help people uh, work out of a collection that they had curated for a particular location. So, you know, you go back to medieval times, the, the, rich, the richness of the monastery was the number of uh, books that it held. That was a bragging point. And the books were, of course, uh, you know, on vellum and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but um, that, you know, now library is, uh, I think Joyce Valenza announced at uh, Educon that she now has developed uh, an app, a library app for her students there in her high school. So that means that the uh, library has moved from, you know, a storage space in a physical world to, uh, you know, right in your hand. And that requires a whole new response to, you know, what li libraries and librarians are all about. So let's not beat around the bush, because I love that, I love what Joyce has done there, and that was really exciting to see. Um, and in one of your books, you actually have, in your treasury, you have an article titled, Librarians as Learning Specialists, Moving from the Margins to the Mainstream of School Leadership. And Peggy George in the chat says, libraries should be the hub of learning. Doesn't feel like that's the common narrative around libraries, even in this sort of new technology world. 
Well, I think, uh, you know, we all have stereotypes. You know, teachers have stereotypes of what their role is. Librarians have stereotypes, too, that we are shedding or we have to shed uh, as the world changes. So, you know, doctors used to do bloodletting, and that was the, and uh, <clears throat> so all the professions and now are having to change midstream, so we have to rethink we have to rethink all the professions, and librarianship is is one that we're we're saying uh, you know we 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 still curate things that is we we build collections that in, in our network to cross the world, uh, but we build up on top of those. Um, uh, it's not uh, I mean we build. Um, the creative use of those collections uh, in the creation of knowledge uh, rather than just furnish the materials upon which knowledge is then created by somebody else. We, we see ourselves as moving into the center of that knowledge building process using the resources now of the world. So we're going to talk tonight about two of your ideas that link very intimately together. One is the learning commons, and the other is the personal learning environment. My sense is that this is a message, an really important message, but that you're having to preach it both to librarians and to those who hire and fire and make decisions about libraries, right? Well, of course, because um, as as we reinvent ourselves, then uh, we have to uh, combat the ideas that um, the stereotypical ideas that keep us, you know, hold us back. And so uh, that's a real challenge, uh, both uh, uh, not only to reinvent ourselves and to develop different types of skill sets. But then to broadcast that and and demonstrate uh, what that actually does uh, in a school or learning situation, either face-to-face -face learning or totally online. So let's talk about your vision of the learning commons. Uh, if you would give us deconstruct a little for us that word commons. Where does it come from, and why is it important here? Well, the word commons um, is a historic um, term in the United States because uh, in the center of town was uh, a place that was an open space or park. If you've been on in Boston, the Boston Commons is still there. And it was in this open space that uh, really democratic uh, uh, thinking uh, was expressed by everyone in the community. Everybody could come there and everybody could talk and everybody could participate. And, uh, and that was a, a very important uh, 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 situation that allowed uh, participatory government to really uh, blossom rather than the, the government of, uh, you know, uh, controlled by a king or a, a very few. So it's uh, so the commons in uh, in the school uh, is designed to uh, as a participatory place rather than uh, the the ownership uh, uh, by the librarian or the computer uh, in a computer lab uh, by a, a tech person who 
quote, controls that space, the commons says open that ownership to the patrons and concentrate on um, teachers and students developing a sense of ownership where everybody can talk, create, build, um, think, um, change, grow, learn, uh, all that stuff. So we're, we're thinking of a commons area, um, both in a physical location, in a school, uh, but also in the vir in virtual space as well. Okay, and your vision of the learning commons as a physical space actually encompasses some uh, decisions about how to use that physical space. I watched you look at some slides at EDUCON uh, that had lots of shelves with lots of books. What, what kinds of changes do you recommend making? Well, if you uh, walk into many libraries, the first thing you, you notice is uh, book stack after book stack after book stack. Uh, but you know in the modern library, uh, the printed uh, volumes are uh, just a few of the information sources that are available uh, because so much now is, is digital which you don't see. But if you walk into, uh, let me just check, I'm hearing a little feedback, am I okay? That was probably me, sorry, I left my mic on. Okay, so if you walk into a library and you you see bookshelf after bookshelf, your impression of looking at that is that it's a storage space and then there might be some space for patrons doing things. And so, so kind of the motto of the learning commons uh, approach is uh, if it doesn't move, does it really belong? So it's kind of clearing the area so that the main space is a very flexible uh, kind of space where lots is going. So it looks like a learning space and it's very flexible. And so um, the furniture and uh, uh, chairs and um, uh, tables of various shapes and kinds move around so that uh, when you'd walk in, uh, you might see one configuration at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 10, it's a different configuration. And uh, uh, by noon, it's another one. And so we, we see uh, uh, the change is uh, pretty radical for uh, a lot of libraries to try to clear out that central space so that it's multifunctional by a wide variety of groups and uh, uh, for uh, uh, numerous kinds of activity, learning activities uh, connected uh, mostly, you know, so that the classrooms uh, from uh, around the school kind of move in there as a, a, a second space or an, an additional classroom space uh, uh, as, uh, you know, almost without without calendaring it, although some, some are calendared, but, but it's open so that everybody can uh, come and, and uh, leave at their, uh, at, you know, as their need uh, uh, dictates. So Chris makes a really interesting point in the chat that there's a tension between sound and silence in library discussions. Is that the reflection of a tension between learning as individual and learning as social? And how do you figure out the balance? 
Well, the Learning Commons that I've uh, been in, uh, well, what they try to do is build a lot of uh, build or just arrange for uh, various kinds of little alcoves, uh, uh, just kind of little spots that can be either uh, small groups working together or individuals studying alone. So um, we do think of a, a multi use space that uh, tries to mix both sound and quiet um, uh, very uh, in a kind of an inventive or creative way so uh, so there there can be little areas of quiet or uh, the change throughout the day and so it depends on the needs of the of the patrons and uh, for example uh, uh, in uh, Bowery Diggs uh, Learning Commons, uh, it just happens that they're kind of little corners, uh, and and they have uh, glass uh, kind of uh, being the uh, edge of the triangle that uh, faces the main room uh, from floor to ceiling, and and uh, just open uh, space on each side, and so you can walk into that triangle, and kids use that either in silence or or they use it as a small group and, and the glass is just enough that it uh, kind of blocks off that uh, the uh, adults can watch what's going on but but the uh, kids can be doing either group work or individual work so it's not an either or kind of thing. So I've been paying a lot of attention to my own learning through these conversations and I've noticed that I have sort of two different modes one is there are periods of time when I really do need silence and if someone's talking it's hard for me to concentrate. The other is either a universal trait or comes specifically from an Irish background. Sometimes I'm not even sure what I'm thinking until I say it. Um, the, the, in, the social interaction really helps me to think through ideas and oftentimes some of the things that um, come out of conversations are so revealing to me even though they come out of my own mouth. So uh, do you think this is sort of inherent in the human condition? Well I do because there's uh, all sorts of styles of learning. We've, we've learned that from Howard Gardner and, and others and so and the challenge of the learning commons is to provide a place for all types of learners in, in all types of, uh, of things. So, and some, some pieces and parts of the place it's uh, almost rowdy, but in other parts it's quiet and everything in between. It just uh, depends on the needs of the, it depends on the needs of the patrons, not on the needs of the person in charge. So the person in charge has to to help that and and facilitate that happening uh, simultaneously. Peggy George has made a comment about earplugs, so I think she's suggesting maybe a rack of earplugs at the door. So if you need some quiet, you can use an earplug. Well, if that works, that's that's a solution. And we we think of uh, you know every we we ask the kids, we ask the owners of the place, the kids, to to help us in creating that sort of balance in that space. And uh, surprisingly, they'll actually step up and uh, and help rather than be dictated to by some authoritarian power. How fun. 
uh, certainly that brings us to this idea of learner-centered activities or environments. Um, Jan McCarthy at Rasmussen College is making note that they offer a noise-canceling headphones in the library. Very, very clever. Where are learning commons being instituted that you might want to point us to to see good examples of this in practice? We're finding learning commons uh, uh, crossing Canada from British Columbia uh, through Ontario here, in fact, uh, and, and actually uh, uh, Canada is uh, blooming more than anywhere. In the United States, we have pockets of them from um, um, the first, we have several in Massachusetts, we have in Ohio, we have a whole state, uh, the whole state of Ohio has created a virtual learning commons for all the teachers uh, of the state so that they can all uh, join in participatory learning uh, there. So it's uh, uh, spotlighted here and there and if anybody wants to contact me I could try to lead them and match them up with a, a place or a person. Uh, we try to feature a lot of these in the magazine that I edit uh, called Teacher Librarian um, so that people can uh, become aware of who's doing what. Um, and we have examples, oh, I think an elementary, a good elementary one in Georgia. Um, there's a whole school district in um, South Carolina that's turning from libraries. And I find them um, just popping up uh, here and there. Um, uh, you know, and uh, some of them raise their head uh, uh, to uh, make themselves known, and others seem to be doing it quite quietly. So I've made it a little bit a part of my own personal mission to help bridge the two worlds that, that I live in, or to bridge the library world to the world I seem to live most in, which is the educational technology world. Um, it, but it sure feels as though the learning commons crosses boundaries in a way that in, that almost make you want to not necessarily have those boundaries. And the personal learning environment seemed to go even further for me. Um, could you describe what you mean by a personal learning environment? Uh, well, a lot of you uh, uh, might be familiar with um, uh, Will Richardson's uh, personal learning networks. And a personal learning network is uh, uh, connections that you uh, make um, uh, to voices outside, uh, could be anywhere in the world, that you want to allow into your head. And uh, so you make uh, judgments about who to connect to a lot of blogs or websites or uh, information sources. Uh, and uh, you uh, say, you know, who's saying what to me, for what reasons, and for what gain. And so you surround yourself with the voices that, that you particularly want to listen to, as well as having the opportunity to go out, uh, you know, of your own preferred voices. You can go out at any time and, and grab others uh, through, you know, serendipity kind of thing. So that's, and then you surround yourself, as Will says, with a, a group of tools, um, Web 2.0 tools, through which you uh, communicate and and uh, um, build and construct and, and that, those sorts of things. But a personal learning uh, environment, I think, is a, a bit larger than that, and I'll describe it. I think 
I think because the internet is so huge and it's like a juggernaut running over the top of all of us, I think we need to take control of the of the portals through which all this stuff comes and it, instead of being dictated to by everything on the web, uh, we can now build um, a portal that uh, where we build, construct our own um, opening to the world as tightly shut as we, we would like or uh, just wide, wide open. And uh, there's uh, uh, one tool that started that probably everybody knows is uh, uh, the iGoogle page where you construct your um, your own home page and you can put on that what you want. For example, a student might uh, put their teachers, uh, you know, so that uh, all their teaching uh, uh, classes are coming there, the weather, their personal, their social, their family kinds of things. And so they want to first when they open their computer, it's, it's coming into that that kind, the kind of world that they can handle and manage themselves. And uh, so that's the first thing I think uh, kids can build. And, and that then in turn opens up the personal learning network part, which is like Will describes where all your tools and your um, the people you're listening to and connecting to are and and then there's a third I think portal and uh, out of the personal learning uh, uh, network you create uh, your own uh, portfolio and in in this space um, uh, you have actually two spaces the first is the the private space where. Uh, you want to keep things, you know, private uh, that you're developing, or uh, but then you have a public face, so that if anybody happens to Google your name, they would come up on your uh, on your pub the public face that you, you want uh, them to to see. Uh, <laughs> so this triad of things uh, constitutes what I would define as the the uh, personal learning uh, environment. I'm putting up on the screen a photograph I took out of your book. It's, it's not easy to see because it obviously it wasn't a professionally taken photo taken by my cell phone. But these are the three spaces, the portal, the personal learning environment, and the personal portfolio. So one of the first things that occurred to me, and, and you address it uh, in your book, and this is from the New Learning Commons where learners win, is that you say it isn't likely that students will have personal learning environments until teachers do. Do you want to comment on that? Well, they, um, you know, they're in this world of social networking, and so you know it, it's all turned on or it's filtered to a certain degree. So they're like us as adults and they need they need guides on the side to, to help them manage. I mean, if you just turn it all on, it's like, you know, just throwing them out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And what do you do? I mean, how do you teach them to swim? And I think the personal learning environment would be that that tool that if we equip 
equip the kids uh, with, then, then they have a tool that they can use for a lifetime uh, uh, as, as this whole internet continues to, to develop. They get the sense, they develop the sense that they are in command rather than at the mercy of, you know, commercial enterprise. Um, political organizations, uh, you know, any of the, any of the the uh, uh, factors that will happen to try to get into their world. As we know, everybody's fighting for attention. Attention is money today, and uh, and and so uh, we have to teach kids to resist and. Build Build their own world rather than somebody else dictating that world to them. So I think uh, because of that, you say the first step here is to actually coach the teachers or the teacher librarians or librarians, right? Right, and librarians, of course, have been at this. Uh, you know, they have built. I mean, in a different in a, in the physical world, they have, you know, they've learned to build an environment, uh, you know, where they collected the information sources, etc. So, and they're pretty easy to teach uh, how you know to transfer that same skill uh, into uh, the the digital world because they already have, if they've been in the profession for any amount of time. Uh, you know, they soon pick this uh, notion up. So my class tonight is, uh, you know, one of our assignments will be exactly this. I mean, and I think for the first time, these graduate students um, uh, will start to develop their own personal learning environment. And uh, I don't anticipate that it will be very difficult uh, for them because they already bring a bucket of skills with them. In the book, you quote uh, David Warlick from his book, A Gardener's Approach to Learning, and this imagery of uh, the, the master learner being like a master gardener. Um, uh, any, any good examples of that? Well, I think, uh, yeah, a gardener, what, uh, picks the plants, uh, cultivates the, the soil, uh, you know, uh, tens, etc., uh, and and then harvest the results, and that that metaphor is exactly transferable over into the information world. I mean, you you are building what you want to build, uh, rather than uh, 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 someone else building that uh, garden for you, and you're you're uh, planting the seeds of who you want to be, what you want to learn, um, uh, how you're going to learn that, um, and, and of course the world is uh, just uh, open uh, now to all these possibilities of both formal and informal learning. So you, uh, you start to be in control rather than, than anybody else in the world. Uh, for example, the public library has always thought of itself as um, the um, Every man's university, uh, and that sort of notion is uh, is now much more possible than when when Ben Franklin, uh, you know, started that whole idea in Philadelphia so many uh, years ago. 
he would never have been able to dream of a day like we have today but that's that whole notion that I am now in command of my own learning is poss more possible today than at any time in the I think in the history of the world. So Peggy George in the chat mentions the uh, the difference between standardized portfolio software and students creating their own. Am I right in guessing that you lean toward the creation of individual portfolios using independent tools? Absolutely. Um, I don't like a lot of uh, the um, the commercial tools um, because they often, by their very construction, they dictate kind of the form and the product uh, that's going to come out the other end. And I would I prefer that my students be out in the world where they are totally free to construct various kinds and be very creative about building their own personal learning environments. And now there are a hundred channels, hundreds of channels uh, to do that uh, and not be confined to a particular um, you know, product that uh, by its structure dictates the outcome. I think that's uh, and the form of that outcome. I think that's really, really important now in the world. So Chris Little brings up a very common response to this, which is that when you have independent tools, you don't have the kind of standardization that makes it easy for the school system to track these over time and, and to make sure they're getting to the right people. Is the answer to that just that that kind of tracking is still not learner-centric. It's more about the institution than it is about the learner. Well, I think so. And um, um, because the opportunities are so great, the organization has to allow for uh, individualized and personal kinds of, of learning uh, of all types. Um, and uh, for example, uh, you know, right now, bring your own device is a major, a major uh, problem that school districts are finally having to address because number one, they a lot of them can't afford to supply every kid with a first-rate uh, computer, so they're having to rely on the kinds of devices. And when they do that, there are people who are doing that learn that the network uh, is is uh, flexible enough to accommodate you know a variety of kinds of styles and I think the same happens in a in the personal learning environment you you kind of uh, help kids you help kids design something that works for them and then the organization um, you know, uh, learns to adapt to that uh, individual preference rather than dictating a certain form in which something will happen or channel in which it will happen. So maybe there's a good model there. You and I shared a cab uh, to the airport with Bethany Smith who described at her institution how it's a bring your own device institution but they do ask for a certain minimum standard 
and then they provide support for the most common varieties. So maybe that's the middle ground, is allowing independence, but also encouraging sort of good practices for making it easy to share. Well, I think you're you're quite right. Uh, so you you put uh, you have the customer, the kid, help you develop those parameters, and so uh, together uh, the adults and the students build. A, so uh, in uh, in the example you use, it's kind of bring your own acceptable device. So. Um, that means that there are, so the school will help you get the kind of device, uh, they'll help you get, you know, and they'll provide a list of acceptable devices. And if yours is not on that list, you can, you can appeal. Uh, for example, a iPad 3 comes out. And that doesn't have to be on the list, but but you can af afford one. And just because it's not on the list, then you negotiate. And uh, so uh, together, uh, it's a collaborative decision about devices, communication, um, product creation, um, uh, knowledge building uh, tools, and all all of those sorts of things. So it's a negotiated kind of uh, uh, environment. Okay, so we have about eight minutes left with David before we've promised that we would let him go so he can teach a class at the top of the hour. Um, David, I want to move to Q&A, so if, you're, if you've got a question for David that was in the chat that, you, that uh, I've missed, I hope you'll post it again, or you can raise your hand. In the participant window, there are some icons at the top, and the third one over is a hand, and I'll give you the microphone. I do want to allow you to make a connection between the learning commons and the personal learning environment. How are the two related? Well, if we take uh, the concept of the, uh, of the librarian who, who uh, has all these curation abilities to bring information and knowledge in all kinds of formats together, and then, um, and then using that as a foundational uh, bank, then, then that person is is a leader in the school in 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 pushing the development of these personal learning environments, um, uh, and side by side with teachers as they they co-teach, for example, if they're co-teaching a a unit of instruction together uh, on a particular topic, then then side by side during this learning experience together, whether it's either virtual or face-to-face -face or blended, uh, then one thing the librarian is constantly doing is urging and helping the teacher help every kid to develop the tools and, and put what they're learning into their learning environment so that they have, so every class becomes, well in, in uh, the uh, uh, SLA where we were at Educon in the school there, all student work is public. In other words, any parent or anybody in the world can look at those kids' work. Uh, 
uh, their, all of their projects, all of their, their the products that they're creating, and so somebody has to guide all that uh, to make sure you know that it's all working. And and so that's the connection I make between librarians and the personal learning environments and learning commons. We've gotten a couple of questions, David. Uh, Sherry wants to know: Is there a place to teach technology still? That is keyboarding uh, for elementary schools students, or do we not worry about that anymore? We do worry about the tool skills, but what, what we do is we integrate them into learning experiences because we, we know that embedded skills into uh, a project that has the kids' attention and, and in which they're engaged, if we teach the, the tool skills right alongside that engaged project, you're going to to have an increase in in both the the knowledge, the learning that you wanted in science, social studies, etc., and you're also going to get um, a faster um, uh, skill uh, uh, skill base uh, as they are trying to use those tools. To, so it's an integrated approach rather than a uh, separate and equal, uh, you know, skills class versus um, just a content class. David, where does self-assessment fit into this picture? Well, it's getting to be more and more because in your personal learning environment, uh, if you know that you know what you're producing is a demonstration of your personal expertise and your collab your ability to collaboratively uh, produce materials with others. Um, there's a constant set of reflection. I noticed at the at uh, the Science Leadership Academy that the kids I interviewed there were 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 regularly helping helping their peers as well as themselves develop develop excellence. And so it was a constant monitoring and. Uh, reflection uh, uh, just as a natural part of our whole learning experience. It, it, it's marvelous to watch that actually in action rather than just concentrate on can I pass the, the, the major test at the end of the school year. So David, Joyce is in the, Joyce Valenza is in the audience and there are some people who are making comments about not only students objecting to their work going public, but the parents objecting as well. And, and Joyce and I and you and I and some others had, had lots of conversations at Educon about the difference between trying to use practice, good practice, as an example to, to help make change take place versus narrative stories about learning that need to be adopted more broadly. So in this sort of tension between good practice and narrative, what's the path forward for helping people to, to rethink libraries, librarianship, and learning? Uh, is it just to continue to show good practice, or do we need to be thinking about telling different stories about learning, or how do we move this ball forward? All of the above. In other words, uh, for an individual student, sure, there's private spaces where you know they are working and working and failing and working and stuff. But there's also an exhibition place 
where they're putting their best foot forward and making that public uh, as part of their their own portfolio. So, you know, it's not one or the other. It's it's that I'm growing, developing, exhibiting, you know, becoming, creating, uh, and all of that stuff. And Joyce is a master at uh, helping kids do that. She's the, the perfect example of of uh, helping kids build build excellence into their learning, uh, you know, rather than, uh, it's the difference between fulfilling an assignment and really learning or mastering uh, kinds of uh, both uh, personally and collaboratively. It's a, it's a wonderful new world, but it requires uh, students to, to build a different skill set than just completing assignments. So the natural segue would be to the big think, but that's going to have to wait for the next interview, and, and maybe at that time we'll talk about Book to Cloud as well. Our guest has been David Lurcher. David, I'm clapping for you. I have to tell people now where the applause button is. If you go to the participant window, look for the smiley face, scroll down to applause. David, thanks so much for coming on, especially while you're traveling and getting ready to teach. Thanks for inviting me. Enjoyed it, and and uh, hope hope uh, folks did also. I'm quite certain they did. Thanks to David for being here. Thanks to you as well for taking the time. Coming up tomorrow, Cable Green talks about the obviousness of open policy. Cable now works for Creative Commons. Uh, on Thursday, we have our special panel on personal learning profiles, which relates very much to this personal learning environment uh, and the idea of how you create a personal map or a plan for uh, yourself as a learner um, about how you learn well and what kinds of things you're interested in. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks, David. Have a good night or day, everybody.